Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 8th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Arbata Chamber of Commerce unveils bold campaign, $2.275 million business initiative seeks to address talent, housing, child care shortages by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Sticks Craft House brings ball arena atmosphere. Hockey bar inspired by Avalanche in-game experience set to open September 9th by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Golden Resident celebrates 100th birthday. Friends, relatives admire a century of love by Nina Joss for the Golden Transcript. Teachers, staff face uncertainty as consolidation decision looms by Riley Dunn for the Jeffco Transcript. Former criminal investigator for Jefferson County convicted of sexual assault by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Teachers, staff, face uncertainty as consolidation decision looms by Riley Dunn. As the Jefferson County Public School Board mulls Superintendent Tracy Dorland's recommendation to close 16 elementary schools in the district, 422 full-time staff members, including 188 classroom teachers, face uncertainty about their job prospects within the district after the 2022-23 school year. The board will vote on Dorland's recommendation on November 10th. If the recommendation is passed, the 16 schools would close at the conclusion of the 2022-23 school year. The district is working with its associations, the Jefferson County Educators Association, and the Jeffco Education Support Professionals Association, to help staff members navigate employment opportunities. The district has about 3,600 classroom teachers and currently has 410 job openings, 103 of which are teacher positions, 89 JCEA positions, and 14 preschool positions, but is anticipating an increased staffing need if the consolidation plan comes to fruition. According to Jeffco Public Schools Communications Executive Director, Kimberly Elo. Elo said that the hiring process for staff members displaced by the consolidations will be different for probationary and non-probationary faculty. Non-probationary staff are those in good standing with the district, while probationary staff members are those who have not completed the three years needed to complete the induction process for licensure or who have a performance improvement plan from the district. Quote, as the JCEA agreement outlines, non-probationary teachers will have employment for one year following the displacement process, Elo said, and they'll be prioritized for interviews during the hiring process. And our educators can choose 
to seek ongoing mutual consent positions rather than just being placed into a position for one year. So they could basically apply for a different position in the district, go through that hiring process, and be chosen. End quote. Non-probationary staff members who do not seek ongoing mutual consent positions will be placed into an open position within the district, Elo said. Probationary teachers will need to seek mutual consent positions, Elo said. If they cannot find one, they'll be out of a job. If probationary teachers are unable to secure a mutual consent position, they will be non-renewed at the conclusion of this 2022-23 school year, Elo said. And so the difference being that a non-probationary teacher, if they go through mutual consent positions and they do not find one, they would be guaranteed a placement and a position for the 23-24 school year, whereas a probationary teacher would just be non-renewed if they're unable to seek a mutual consent position, end quote. Elo said that the district is considering holding an internal-only hiring period between the November 10th school board decision and the district's normal hiring process for the 2023-24 school year, which usually begins in February. Elo said that hiring people, that the hiring period would seek to keep displaced staff members in Jeffco. We really do believe here in Jeffco that we already employ the best and brightest educators in our state, Elo said, and we really want to do everything possible to retain them within Jeffco schools and to work collaboratively so that they can achieve their career goals and aspirations in this process as well. JCEA President Brooke Williams said that while the idea has been floated by the district, no decisions have been made. We are currently discussing a lot of ideas with the district right now, but we don't have any agreements yet, Williams said. Elo said that the district will order offer staff opportunities to gain endorsements for, quote, hard-to-staff areas at no cost to them. She explained that special education and secondary math and science teachers are the hardest positions to fill in the district right now, and the district would pay for staff to get special education endorsements to make them more competitive in the hiring process. Staffing needs created by consolidations will be determined after the choice enrollment period, which begins on December 6th, after which the district will determine where staffing is needed. Gender-Affirming Facial Surgery to be Added to Jefferson County Insurance Benefits by Andrew Freely of the Jeffco Transcript. Facial gender-affirming surgery is set to be covered in the 2023 County Employee Benefits Plan. The Jefferson County Board of County Commissioners passed the resolution approving the benefits August 30th. In October of 2021, Colorado announced all health insurers it regulates must cover gender-affirming care by 2023, affecting plans for individual and small group markets like employers with less than 100 employees. This does not include employers like Jefferson County, though. FGAS was added to benefits because it was required by the county's insurer, Kaiser according to Jeffco Human Resources Director Jennifer Fairweather. Jefferson County's benefits plan resolution only specifically includes facial surgery. 
which the plan defines as, quote, medically necessary gender-affirming facial surgery required for the treatment of gender, gender dysphoria. FGAS is considered cosmetic in many states, according to one 2021 study on coverage of FGAS in Medicaid and commercial insurance across the country. Andrew Miller, an educator to doctors and others on equitable treatment at Denver Health, considers it a deeply affirming and necessary procedure, he told NPR at the time. Health Equity and Training Director Marvin Allen of One Colorado, an advocacy group for LGBTQ equality in Colorado, said similarly that being considered a cosmetic causes these gender-affirming surgeries to be unaffordable. Based on our own research, we know that gender-affirming care is vital to the mental health of transgender and non-binary Coloradans. For too many, gender-affirming care is unaffordable and unattainable, Helen said in a statement last year. Colorado already covers gender-affirming treatments under Medicaid, as do a few other states, but Colorado is the first state to have federal approval for gender-affirming health care coverage to be required in these private insurance plans. Possible changes to the county's 2023 benefit plan also include coverage for infertility and treatment, mental health and substance abuse visits covered completely with no copay, and the county covering all premium increases in general. former criminal investigator for Jefferson County convicted of sexual assault by Andrew Fraley. Former Westminster police officer and criminal investigator for the first judicial district attorney's office, Wayne Darrell Nelson, 69 has been convicted of three counts of misdemeanor unlawful sexual contact. According to the first judicial district attorney's office. This is for the sexual assault of two adult women between April 2018 and December 2020. The women were tenants and roommates of Nelson's. Initially, he had charges from a third woman, another roommate, but that sexual assault charge was dropped, said the DA's office. Nelson had turned himself in to the Jefferson County Jail in June of 2021 according to AP, and was teaching concealed carry weapons courses and women's self-defense classes at the time of the arrest. According to the DA's office, the victims told detectives they were too afraid to report Nelson because he was a retired law enforcement officer. Nelson resigned from the DA's office in 2014. His sentencing hearing is scheduled for October 28th, according to the DA's office. Arvada Chamber of Commerce unveils bold campaign. $2.275 million businesses initiative seeks to address talent, housing, child care shortages by Riley Dunn. As birth rates slow and the population ages, forecasts from Colorado State demographer Elizabeth Garner spell trouble down the line for the Jefferson County business community. In an effort to combat potential personnel, housing, and child care shortages, the Arvada Chamber of Commerce announced the bold 2026 campaign at Social Capital on August 25th. 
The campaign seeks to raise $2.275 million by 2026, of which $2.1 million has already been secured, according to Arvada Chamber of Commerce President Cami Welch. Arvada Mayor Mark Williams announced that the city of Arvada will commit $500,000 to the program, a decision city council unanimously supported. The initiative seeks to address four key areas, growing talent to meet staffing needs of employers, increasing the area's stock of workforce housing, increasing child care capacity for workers, and strengthening the business environment. Our mission is, as an organization, is to solve the most critical issues plaguing the community, Welch said. We have four goals in the bold initiative. These are well vetted. We use a data-informed approach. There are multiple stakeholders and audiences that will benefit from this. Welch said that the Chamber's team would be calling, quote, calling elected officials more and submitting a grant, grant applications in order to maintain the area as, quote, a favorable place to do business. Garner gave a presentation at the kickoff event, which detailed a declining under 18 population as a result of a slowing birth rate. All of you should be panicking when you see this because everyone will compete for those young adults, Garner said. Garner also touched on housing issues. She stated that Colorado has the 12th highest median in in income in the country, but the fourth highest medium home value. 126,000 fewer housing units were built in the state from 2010 to 2020 than in the previous decade. Typically, what we see over time is job growth drives migration, Garner said. A job is a person. A housing unit is where that job sleeps at night. It's really hard to be pro-job growth and anti-people. We're slowing down, Garner continued. We're still growing, so we're still needing to know where to put people. But the growth rate is slowing. How do we provide goods and services when we're flattening out? How do we continue to thrive when we see downward pressure? Everyone is important and essential. We can't leave anyone behind. Make sure everyone counts, everyone has a place to live. Welch said that the remaining 33% of the funding sought from the BOLD initiative will come from the private sector. Sticks Craft House brings ball arena atmosphere. Hockey bar inspired by Avalanche in-game experience, set to open September 9th. Shot goal! The Foghorn blares the siren sounds, and 20,000 raucous fans rise to their feet in celebration. A scene familiar to hockey fans who cheered in Avalanche Cola Ball Arena will be coming to Old Town Arvada on September 9th when Sticks Craft House opens its doors for the first time. Founded by Jake Gross and Aaron Bowden, Styx seeks to combine two things close to its founders' hearts, the in-game atmosphere of an Avalanche game, and craft beer. The pair met after Gross posted in an Avalanche fan Facebook group proposing to open an Avs-themed bar, and Bowden responded. When Chef Keenan Cameron... Heading up the dining options, a slate of what Gross calls, quote, upscale bar food and 20 taps, including Four Noses Raspberry Blonde and Odell's Good Behavior, Stick seeks to be every hockey fan's favorite place to watch an avalanche game. Sticks held a soft opening on September 3rd. 
and scheduled its grand opening for September 9th. The Craft House is located at 5777 Old Wadsworth Boulevard, R100 in Arvada, the former site of the Flying Pig. Gross, who fell in love with hockey when his mom took him to an avalanche game about a decade ago, said the idea for sticks came from a brainstorming session Gross had when he felt unsure about what to do with his life. I was kind of thinking to myself, what do I want to do with life, Gross said. And I was trying to find a niche in the market that wasn't tapped into yet. And then also, how can I combine most of my favorite things in one? So, I made a list of about 80 things I liked. Fishing, camping, the outdoors, swimming, climbing, hockey, craft beer, all of that kind of stuff. And I tried to link as many as I possibly could, Gross continued. Having that hockey concept was a big thing for me. And try tying in the craft beer to that was a big game changer. Gross said he feels like there isn't really a good hockey bar in the area. He said that he and Boden wanted, went to local breweries to sample in order to decide what craft beer to offer. He added that the in-game experience is to him what makes people fall in love with hockey, which is why Styx will try to bring that feel to Arvada. A big part of what the concept here is, it's bringing the stadium to you, Gross said. And I really feel like the stadium is where people get attached. If you ever go to a hockey game, it's not just the game that you're watching. It's the environment you're in. It's the excitement. It's the crowd. It's the food. It's the smell. It's the vibe, essentially. To that end, Cameron will serve fine upscale stadium food, including French dip sandwiches, cheesesteaks, nachos, jumbo hot dogs, and beer-infused offerings, such as a pale ale whiskey caramel and a beer cheese. The Craft House seeks to have 25 to 30 employees and holds 270 people inside and out, according to Gross, who said a lot of people walked into the bar during renovations to inquire about work. A lot of our employees have actually walked in curious about this place. Like, I love hockey. Do you have any openings? Gross said. We've hired a lot of people from just them walking in. Gross said he hopes to open a Sticks location in every hockey market in the U.S. and Canada. He added that while we, he hadn't been to Old Town Arvada before checking out the site, he fell in love immediately thanks to the feel and atmosphere of the area. Our goal is to open up a location in every hockey city around the U.S. and Canada, Gross said. We're starting here. We're Avalanche fans, and we're going to kind of cater Sticks across the world as when you go to Dallas, we'll have a Dallas bar. When you go to North Carolina, we'll have a Hurricanes bar. And we'll still be resembling Sticks, but it's like Sticks Hockey Town Bar. Gross added that he's excited to be a part of the Old Town business scene. I'm excited to be a good part of this community and get to know all the locals in the area, Gross said. I've gotten to know our fellow neighbors here quite well. I think what we're offering here is a much-needed, different vibe that Colorado has been screaming for and it's time. Sticks will be open from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Sundays through Thursdays and 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. Fridays and Saturdays. Golden Resident celebrates 100th birthday. Friends, relatives admire a century of love by Nina Joss.
The residents of Canyon Gate Apartments in Golden know when Antoinette Tony Velarde is cooking. The scents of garlic and oregano float down the halls as she whips up whatever Italian recipe is on the table for the day, be it pizza, pasta, or something involving eggplant. Lucky for her neighbors, Velarde always shares. She treasures them and consistently offers homemade pastries, visits outside on summer afternoons, and walks to the Golden Farmer's Market. Velarde is a cook, a social butterfly, a live music lover, and a nature enthusiast. And on top of all that, Velarde is 100 years old. On August 31st, dozens of friends and relatives gathered in an event space at Canyon Gate, a subsidized senior apartment building, to celebrate an entire century of Velarde's presence in this world. She's a favorite amongst all residents there, said Vicky Meehan, the centurion's private caregiver who planned the celebration with Velarde's daughter. She gives so much, and it's just amazing how much she adds to the community. She adds a ray of light here, said Jenny Maurer, the sister of one of Velarde's closest friends. She never has an unkind word to say about anyone. Similar admirations and appreciations of Velarde's kindness were reiterated by countless loved ones at the gathering, some of whom had known her their whole lives and others for only a few years. I've been here just a little over four years, said Canyon Gate resident Kathy Fortress. Tony came a little bit after I did, but it made a big difference. About four years ago, Velarde moved into her Canyon Gate apartment. This move brought her closer to her daughter and son-in-law in Golden and her son's family in Crested Butte. After living most of her life in Rhode Island, where she was born on September 2, 1922, she wanted to be near family for her late senior years, according to her daughter, Elaine Marola. Marola said she thinks Velarde's positivity is the key to her health and happiness. She has never said she has never said negative about anyone or anything, she said. So having a positive attitude, I think, is maybe what brings out good mental wellness, which brings out good physical wellness. Not only does Velarde look at the world in a positive light, but she also motivates herself with a can-do mindset that everyone could learn from, Marola said. As she's aged, one of her favorite expressions is, when I wake up in the morning, if I don't have a plan, I make one, she said. She's a positive person, end quote. According to Velarde, the secret to a happy life is having good people in it. If it wasn't for my family, I'm sure I wouldn't be here this long, she said. I'm so happy that I moved to Colorado and I met some wonderful friends and they're making my life so wonderful to live. Velarde returns the favor by improving her friends' lives, said Canyon Gate resident Jerry Miller. In a card to Velarde, she wrote that although living to be 100 is amazing and rare, what really needs to be celebrated is you and the exceptional good, kind, inspirational, joyful, and unconditionally loving person you are. After a century of life, Velarde is overwhelmed by gratitude and is happy to keep living. Her advice for a good life is simple. Be happy. Enjoy life and be thankful every day, she said. Who wants to die when there's so much to live for? Visitors learn about bird banding at Bar Lake State Park. The Bird Conservancy of the Rockies conducts banding at five stations across 
Colorado and Nebraska in the Fall by Nina Joss. As the early morning sunlight began to peek through the trees, Linda Grain helped her mother, Sue Pop, take a seat inside a small wooden pavilion at Bar Lake State Park. Nearby, scientists and volunteers were gently trapping migratory birds, many of which were about to begin a long journey to Central or South America, and others that were already on their way. They caught house wrens, song sparrows, Wilson's warblers, and more yellow warblers than you can imagine, put identification bands on their legs and set them free. At 93, Pop loves birds. And on August 26th, Grain woke her up extra early so they, she could see dozens of them up close. Bar Lake State Park is one of the five sites across Colorado and Nebraska where visitors can watch staff from the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies conduct bird banding each fall. Bird banding is a method used to collect data about wild birds to increase scientific understanding of migratory routes and timings, species range limits, average lifespans, and how all these life history characteristics may be changing over time. On the state park property, there are 25 barely visible nets, so thin they're called mist nets, Volunteer Send Barnes said. Birds fly into these nets and gently fall into a pocket where volunteers and staff retrieve them to bring them to the banding station, she said. At the station, bander and volunteer coordinator Meredith McBurney measured the width of each bird's legs to determine which size band would be the best fit. She then attaches a lightweight aluminum band to one leg on each bird. So every bird gets a band. Every band has a different number. And of course, it's caught again. We know exactly which one it is, McBurney said, pausing every now and then to announce measurements of the bird's wingspan, tail feathers, weight, amount of fat, and stage of molting to a volunteer keeping track of the numbers on a handwritten chart. This data is sent to the U.S. Geological Survey, which gathers data from banders across the nation to analyze and track migratory patterns and population well-being, McBurney said. When a banded bird is caught in a different location, it provides information about that bird's travel path, she said. Ancestry.com approach. In addition to taking note of the band number and measurements, McBurney collects two feathers, from some of the birds she catches. These feathers are sent to Colorado State University to contribute to the Bird Genescape Project, she said. In order to be able to conserve birds, we have to be able to understand their full life cycle. That is everything that happens to the bird during the year, McBurney said. One of the ways we can do that, besides putting on a band and catching again, is to look at the DNA. The Bird Genoscape Project is a ge genomics-based project where we are looking to sort of take an Ancestry.com approach to avian genetics, said Jacob Job, Associate Director of the project. The project started in 2009 as a partnership between scientists at CSU and the University of California, Los Angeles, Job said. In 2019... The Bird Conservancy of the Rockies started to contribute DNA samples to the project, McBurney said. Banding is scientifically useful to understand overall population patterns, but it has its limits. Collecting DNA samples can take scientists well beyond those limitations, Job said.
Part of the problem with banding is you have to recover those same birds. That's very difficult, Job said. Our approach? We don't ever have to ca recapture a bird. If we capture an American robin in the winter in Mexico, all we have to do is pull a feather from that bird, look at its genetics, and we can see which population that bird came from. Job said the project helps scientists to better understand which populations are struggling and which ones are doing well, so that conservation energy and money can be directly applied where it is most needed. Migratory stopover. Within the larger mission of conservation, it's important to care for the habitats where birds spend time, Barnes said. Bar Lake State Park is an important stopover on the migratory path for many species as it provides food, water, shelter, and space, she said. This is an absolute important migratory stopover, she said. It's not just a minor little thing. So we want to preserve Bar Lake and we want people to understand what an absolute gem they have in their backyard because so many people from Brighton have never even been here. Visitors can register online to spend a morning at the site to learn more about bird banding like Grain and Pop did. The station is open to the public Tuesdays through Sundays until October 23rd. Visiting the station costs $6 per person. In addition to the educational value of learning about bird conservation, experiencing bird banding up close can be magical no matter what age you are. It's like being a child again, you know, Pop said. It's wonderful. Sharing Mexican Culture Mariachi Festival takes place at Levitt Pavilion on September 25th by Chansey J. Gatlin Anderson, special to Colorado Community Media. In 2017, a teenaged William Treviso joined his father's mariachi band, Mariachi Aguila de Denver. Needing a violin player, the band recruited the classically trained student who quickly fell in love with the vibrant melodies and joyful rhythm of mariachi. Now a 22-year-old music performance student at Metropolitan State University of Denver, Treviso is a part of the All-State Youth Ensemble, Mariachi Estelares de Colorado, a prestigious performance group within the mariachi community. I'm truly excited to be able to share such a big part of Mexican culture, said Treviso. It is also an honor to be able to share our culture with people whose culture is not Mexican, to share and teach why we love Mexican culture so much. The fifth annual Viva Southwest Festival de Mariachi is coming to Ruby Hill Park as part of the Levitt Pavilion Denver's free summer concert series. The event will take place from 5 to 7 p.m. September 25th at 1380 West Florida Avenue in Denver. A ticketed VIP reception begins at 3 p.m. The MSU Department of Music and the Latino Cultural Arts Center of Colorado have teamed up to provide the night of music, food, drinks, and fun for Denverites, families, and anyone who loves traditional Mexican music and culture. This festival provides the greater community with a unique learning experience, said Lorenzo Trujillo, festival director and mariachi instructor at MSU. It is unique because there is no other place where you can study 
where our youth can study mariachi music with other students from throughout the states and to learn from the great mariachi teachers from throughout the nation. The concerts provide an enjoyable experience with music provided by our youth where everyone benefits from the joy and pleasure of mariachi, the music of Mexican people. The yearly musical festival is a time when the Denver Latinx community comes together to celebrate mariachi, which is a Mexican music tradition dating back to the early 18th century. A typical mariachi band consists of several instruments, including vocals, guitar, vihuela, guitarron, which is an acoustic bass, violin, and trumpet. Oftentimes a mariachi band will have several of each of these instruments. This year the concert boasts mariachi estalares de Colorado as the opening act and the world renowned Lupita Infante performing alongside Mariachi Sol de Mi Tierra, which is a local band. Mariachi Estelares de Colorado is the first all-state youth ensemble in Mariachi. After a lengthy nomination and audition process, 12 exceptional student musicians were selected, representing communities across Colorado, Denver, Commerce City, Longmont, Pueblo, and Westminster. I'm really excited to perform with Colorado's first all-state Mariachi. Mariachi Estelares de Colorado Infante said, It's a beautiful venue, and I'm really looking forward to connecting with the audience and creating lasting memories. End quote. Infante will headline the festival with her bold, regional Mexican sound. Being the granddaughter of the late mariachi superstar Pedro Infante, Lupita Infante has more than 50,000 followers on Instagram and more than 75,000 on Facebook. She has been nominated for both Grammy and Latin Grammy Awards. Pedro Infante was one of the world's greatest singers of mariachi music. Lupita is now carrying forth his legacy, Trujillo said. She represents the future of our youth as represented by our historical music. Lupita's 2021 Grammy-nominated debut album, La Serenata, opened the door to stardom while paying tribute to the tradition and beauty of her heritage. She believes in the power of progress and advocates for women, women empowerment throughout her music with an industry historically dominated by men. Quote, Mariachi for me is the most beautiful and elegant music of Mexico. It is a living part of our culture. In it, there is a past that created the music and over time, much like our traditions, it has evolved, traveled, and inspired many hearts, Infante said. When you hear mariachi music, it takes you on a journey through time and space. For me, it is how I connect with my ancestors, to my father, to my grandfather. For more information on the Viva Southwest Festival de Mariachi or to purchase tickets, visit lcac-denver.org slash Viva Southwest Mariachi Festival. Local Voices. Coming soon? The Apocalypse? Maybe. Riders on the Range by Pepper Trail. Just about every video game, young adult novel, and buzzworthy streaming series agree that we need to prepare for a post-apocalyptic world. Up ahead, around a sharp curve or off a cliff, it's waiting 
the apocalypse. Maybe not, quote, the complete final destruction of the world, but certainly, quote, an event involving destruction or damage of an awesome or catastrophic scale. To quote the two definitions in the Oxford Online Dictionary, not yet, but soon. This has me wondering, how will we know when we move from pre to post-apocalypse? This summer, my hometown in southern Oregon was crushed under a heat dome, sweltering in triple-digit temperatures. A fire across the state line ignited and within 24 hours exploded to become California's largest wildfire this year so far. The two mountain lakes that provide water to our valley, orchards, and vineyards are at 2% and 6% full. That is 98% and 94% empty. Last year, an even more severe heat dome pushed temperatures in normally cool Seattle and Portland to record-shattering levels. Wildfires burned more than a million acres in Oregon, and 2,000-year-old giant sequoias perished in fires of unprecedented severity in California's Sierra Nevada. Catastrophic extremes are becoming normal. The Great Salt Lake is at the lowest level ever recorded, spawning toxic dust storms. A mega drought has shriveled the Colorado River with the beginning of major cutbacks in water deliveries to Arizona and Nevada. Elsewhere in the West, flooded, devastated, flooding devastated Yellowstone National Park in June, collapsing roads and leading to the evacuation of over 10,000 visitors. Widening our view, Dallas is currently inundated with what is described as a 1,000-year flooding event. Following similarly, flooding disasters in Las Vegas, St. Louis, and Kentucky earlier this summer. Across the Atlantic, Europe was scorched by the highest temperatures ever recorded this summer, triggering massive wildfires, the collapse of a glacier in Italy, and over 10,000 heat-related deaths. India, China, and Japan experienced record heat waves this year. I could go on, but no doubt you have read the news, too, about climate-caused apocalyptic events. Closely related is the global extinction crisis, with over a million species at risk by the end of this century. Bird populations in the United States have collapsed by one-third in the past 50 years, and the world's most diverse ecosystems, including tropical rainforests and coral reefs, could largely disappear in coming decades. Let's also not forget COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed at least 6.46 million people worldwide and sickened 597 million. That pandemic shows no sign of ending as the virus continues to evolve new variants. Meanwhile, the new global health emergency of monkeypox has been declared and polio, once eliminated in this country, is back, thanks to people who aren't vaccinated. What about America's social fabric? According to a poll taken this summer by the New York Times, a majority of Americans surveyed now believe that our political system is too divided to solve the nation's problems. The nonprofit Gun Violence Archive has documented 429 mass shootings so far this year in America, with mass shootings defined as at least four people killed or injured. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade has led to a rapid and stark division of the country into states that permits abortions versus those that outlaw it. Republicans and Democrats increasingly live in separate media universes, with both sides concerned about the possibility of a civil war. 
I admit that this is a staggering list of, quote, damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale, but I'm not ready to declare myself a citizen of the post-apocalypse. We don't have to live there. Instead, let's accept that humanity and the whole planet are apocalypse-adjacent. The apocalypse is before us, and we can see it clearly, but the world is not yet ruined. Human beings do have this redeeming and also infuriating trait. We are at our most creative and cooperative when it is almost too late. We can, we must, pull each other back from the brink. To fail is to condemn our children to live in the hellscape of a dystopian video game. As they will tell you, that is no place to be. Pepper Trail is a contributor to Writers on the Range, writersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. He is a naturalist and writer in Ashland, Oregon. Local Life, the many metro manifestations of mango. For some Denver area businesses, the flavorful fruit is a token of the wider world by Robert Tan. For many, mangoes are defined by bright colors, aromatic flavor, and embodiment of the sun-soaked tropics. But for some Denver area business owners, the fruit is also a sense of identity, cultural connection, and one's openness to the new. From a refugee resource center offering an array of dine-in cuisines to a dessert bar fusing traditional Hong Kong sweets with western styles, the mango serves as a token of the wider world for a landlocked metropolitan area. At Mango House in Aurora, such sentiment could not better describe the mission of P.J. Palmer, who began the organization in 2014 to provide resources, primarily low-cost health care, to refugees, asylum seekers, and undocumented immigrants. It also serves as a marketplace with a grocery store and several vendors preparing and selling fresh-made food from their home countries. Mangoes are from everywhere our patients come from, but they are not from the U.S., said Palmer whose family immigrated from India, where mangoes are cherished and abundant. Permar said he chose the name Mango House because he wanted something tasty and fun that paid homage to his patients and patrons. He said he sees people from a broad swath of countries and regions, including Nepal, Burma, Somalia, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan, and Ethiopia. Some who come to Mango House do so for space to start their business. Currently, it is home to five small food stalls. Urban Burma, known for its rice noodle bowls. Curry and samosas. Jasmine Syrian food with cumin and lemon-flavored hummus and chicken. Oda, Ethiopian restaurant providing an abundance of flavorful meats and vegetables. Nepali Mountain Kitchen serving up warm curry and momo. And Golden Sky Sushi, which offers a fusion of Japanese and other Asian cuisines. All my tenants are my patients, Palmer said. I like to think what we do is unique. Siri Tan, who began serving Burmese cuisine from his stall, Urban Burma, in 2019, said without Mango House, we wouldn't exist. Tan said he, quote, wanted to introduce Burmese cuisine into the Denver area and through a patchwork of cooking education that included recipe books, online videos, and tips from the Burmese community, he made that dream a reality. 
I love Asian food and all kinds of Asian food, Tan said. When I hear that people like our food, that's what makes me happy. For Parmar, he hopes the food of Mango House can offer an invitation for Coloradans to explore something new and build relationships with their immigrant neighbors. I'd like to think we aren't just preaching to the choir with our restaurant goers already loving refugees, Parmar said. I do think, occasionally, someone, adult or even a child who has doubts about foreigners, is brought as part of a group, and their eyes are open a bit when they are here. At least their mouths, or palates, are opened. Chance to try new things. For business owner Robert Kuo, who owns co-owns Mango, Mango Desserts in Denver, bringing customers his taste of Asia drove him to open his shop. I think people like to come to try new things, said Kuo, who opened the store in 2019 alongside his business partner, MMO. Founded in Flushing, New York, Mango Mango has since been franchised to several locations across the U.S., Kuo, who immigrated from Taiwan at age five, said he fell in love with the business after first trying it in Flushing and sought to open one in Denver because, at the time, he saw no, quote, truly Asian dessert places. The desserts bar, offering roughly 30 meals and 20 drinks, imbues the sweet and citrus-like flavors of mango into nearly all its cuisine. The signature dessert is modeled after a traditional Hong Kong favorite and consists of mango, ice cream, fresh fruit, juice, and soba. Edible starch pearls that Kyo said have been eaten way, way, way before boba. Mangoes, Kyo said, are, quote, in every corner of Hong Kong, and that dessert in particular is a beloved treat. A lot of people like mango, and I think it's a perfect fit for our shop, Kyo said. Mango Mango offers a palette of other sweet treats, some of which are inspired by more Western foods, such as a layered crepe cake with mango cream filling or fresh-baked waffles drizzled with chocolate and cold mango chunks. And it's not just mango that's on the menu. The shop also serves flavors for other desserts that include matcha, durian, and taro. Some of these come in the form of warm dishes popular during the winter, Cow said. Others such as bright green durian pancake rolls and purple powdered taro cakes present a unique and inviting option for customers, though these desserts are more subtle and savory compared with the reliable sweetness of the mango counterparts. Symbol for a mission For Mark Corona, who runs Mango Tree Coffee in Inglewood, mangoes serve as a form of expression for the business's larger mission a branch of MANA Worldwide, a global non-profit network that works with organizations in 50 countries. All proceeds from Mango Tree go back into MANA's efforts to fight global poverty, which include building schools and food centers and expanding access to water, education, and job opportunities. Corona said the coffee shop's name harkens to a MANA trip in 2002, when community members gathered under a mango tree in Kenya to discuss anti-poverty programs for the area. As we've built Mango Tree, that's the mindset that we have, creating a space where everybody feels welcome and can be a part of something bigger than themselves, Corona said. Opened in June 2021, Mango Tree roasts its coffee in-house and offers a reliable cafe menu complete with espresso-based drinks, chai, and teas. But one standout item is the mango shot, a blend of mango chunks, kefir, 
a fermented dairy product and spices. I think one of the main aspects that drives what we do is sort of passion and drive to have fun, Corona said. Having a mango shot, that was just another way to create that experience for people. People are at the heart of Mango Tree's ethos, Corona said, and outside of providing assistance to global, global poverty-fighting efforts, the business also strives to be an advocate locally. Mango Tree partners with area churches and other organizations to provide packed lunches to Inglewood school students, a complement to the district's free and reduced lunch program. We want to be an asset to the community, Corona said, adding that the coffee shop also serves as a gathering place, much as its namesake, Mango Tree, did 20 years ago. It's cool to see the community have the same mindset as we do of, hey, we like to do things together. Business hours of the Mango House location is 10180 East Colfax Avenue in Aurora. Hours are 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday. 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesday through Thursday, closed Sunday. Mango Mango, location 1144 South Colorado Boulevard in Denver. Hours are noon to 9 p.m. Monday through Thursday, noon to 11 p.m. Friday through Sunday. The Mango Tree Coffee location is 3498 South Broadway, Inglewood. Hours 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday, closed Sunday. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice I'll be reading New Exhibition Celebrates 100 Years of Boulder Community Health by Jesse J. Gray. From Denverite I'll be reading Denver wants to pour millions into the South Platte River Trail. Here's where it could make your run or ride better by Nathaniel Miner. And Denver hopes sidewalk stencil reminders and slow zones will reduce scooter injuries by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading Revolutionary Teacher's DPS Hose Job and Aurora Rebirth by Michael Roberts. And CBS4 Denver Wants to Be Your Neighbor, also by Michael Roberts. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. New Exhibition Celebrates 100 Years of Boulder Community Health by Jesse J. Gray. Like much from the early day days of the COVID-19 pandemic, the term healthcare hero has dimmed in the public imagination. Scenes of city dwellers banging pots and pans out their windows in appreciation for frontline hospital workers feel like a faraway memory in 2022, as a shrugging malaise settles around our grim new normal. But a new exhibition at the Museum of Boulder is shifting the focus back to those who serve on the bleeding edge of sub such public health emergencies. Marking the 100th anniversary of Boulder Community Health, the region's largest nonprofit health system, the show explores a century of care, from medical procedures in the 1920s to the pandemic response and beyond. The role healthcare providers have served at this moment in time is beyond the level of life-saving care 
that we are accustomed to attributing to them, said Emily Zinn, the director of education at the Museum of Boulder. We wanted to celebrate the depths of that legacy. Founded in 1922, Boulder Community Health is one of only two remaining independent nonprofit hospitals in Colorado. With photographs, documents, and objects spanning decades, the museum's 100 Years of Boulder Community Health exhibition dives deep into what has made the long-running health network a cornerstone of the community since its first inception as the 15-bed North Boulder Hospital at the intersection of Broadway and Alpine Avenue. But according to many in attendance during the opening reception in the Museum of Boulder's second-floor lodge gallery on August 18th, that legacy of care is a community effort. To that end, the exhibition features an entire wall dedicated to the many partnerships between Boulder Community Health and other organizations, including homelessness service providers like Bridge House and the Boulder Shelter for Homeless. Nobody can do it alone, including BCH and our employees. We are successful because we continue to partner with the community, said Tony Sarge, who works in content marketing and public relations for Boulder Community Health. That's how we've remained an independent hospital, one of only two in the state, which is really a big deal. With that community aspect front and center in 100 years of Boulder Community Health, the exhibition also takes great care to celebrate the individual team members who have helped the organization grow and adapt over the course of its century-long history on the front range. For retirees like Claire Riley, a former employee of 30 years who helped found the hospital's behavioral health program in 1986, the new exhibition offered an opportunity to reflect on a legacy she and others were instrumental in forging. It's a legacy, she says, that belongs to the whole community. It's just nice to remember that we're all part of this, she said. 100 Years of Boulder Community Health is on display in the Lodge Gallery at the Museum of Boulder through September 19th. The next two articles are from Denverite. Denver wants to pour millions into the South Platte River Trail. Here's where it could make your run or ride better, by Nathaniel Miner. The backbone of the Denver Metro's regional trail network will get tens of millions of dollars worth of repairs and upgrades over the next eight years. More than a half dozen separate projects will result in a nearly completely rebuilt South Platte River Trail from top to bottom in Denver by 2030, said Cincerea Edis, Resiliency and Regional Trails Program Supervisor for Denver Parks and Recreation. We know that we have a changing city, Edis said. It's rapidly growing and we know that we need to provide multimodal options for people to move throughout the city but also provide options that reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Highlights include the construction of a new section of trail on the west side of the South Platte just north of Alameda Avenue. Currently, the trail is on the east side there and directly adjacent to the roar of Interstate 25. Other sections will be upgraded as concrete slabs 12 feet wide bordered by four foot wide lanes of crushed rock. The trail is used by hundreds of cyclists and pedestrians every day, according to city data. It's also become a refuge for people experiencing homelessness as police and other agencies push them out of other parts of the city. So the city is considering their presence in its designs for trail upgrades. This means including design elements like more lighting at underpasses and trail access points. Planners will also try to eliminate hiding places by not planting certain types of trees. 
Edis added that park rangers currently work with police and human service teams to get resources to unhoused people. As parks and recreation, we're not going to solve the bigger problem, she said. Here's a look at all the city's plans starting on its southern border. Segment 1, West, Wesley Avenue to Grant Frontier Park. The city is working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to rehabilitate the river on Denver's south side. Part of that larger project will include trail widening. The trail work is still in the design phase. Construction could start in late 2023 or early 2024 and last 12 to 15 months. The cost is just under $1 million for the trail work. Segment 2, Mississippi Avenue to Johnson Habitat Park. This section of the trail has been closed since a retaining wall failed in 2020. The existing wall, which dates back to the 1970s, will be replaced and the trail itself will be upgraded too. The design is nearly done, but construction needs to happen during low-flow winter months, so it could start in late 2023 or early 2024 and last 15 to 18 months. The city is also evaluating whether it could temporarily reopen the trail in the summer of 2023, so pedestrians and cyclists can avoid the current, rather unpleasant detour on Jason Street. The estimated cost is $8 million. Segment 3, Johnson Habitat Park to Biode Avenue. South Park River Drive south of Alameda Avenue will be moved slightly to the west to allow the trail to be widened and for trees to be planted between the trail and the road. The work will also coincide with the Colorado Department of Transportation's planned rebuild of the Alameda Bridge. The construction could start late in 2023 and last 12 to 15 months. The estimated cost is $10 million. Segment 4, Biode Avenue to Phil Milstein Park. Currently, the trail crosses the South Platte River just north of Biode and hugs Interstate 25 for about a half a mile. A new section of trail will be constructed on the river's west side on city-owned land between the Denver Animal Shelter and the Denver Wastewater Management Building. There's a chain-link fence, it is said. We're just going to move that over and open up all that space for the trail. The existing trail next to the highway will be closed, but could be used as a backup when the new trail is closed for maintenance. A new bridge will connect the new trail with Phil Milstein Park. The city has deemed the existing out-of-use 3rd Avenue bridge unsafe and will either rehabilitate it for pedestrian use or demolish it, Edis said. The design is still in the early stages. The city hasn't yet found funding for it, so there's no estimated construction start date either. Construction could take 15 to 18 months. Residents who want this project to be prioritized should speak in its support when Denver applies for grants from the Denver Regional Council of Governments, Edith said. Estimated cost is $11 million. Segment 5 is Sun Valley. It's the trail between Weir Gulch and 11th Avenue and eventually 13th Avenue will be upgraded as part of the redevelopment of Sun Valley. It's unclear as to when or how much this would cost. Segment 6 is I-25 to Confluence Park. Both trails on the east and west sides of the river will be upgraded as part of the Big River Mile development near Ball Arena. It's also unclear as to when and how much this one would cost. Segment 7, 31st Street to 51st Street. The city is upgrading the Globeville Levee and the section of trail that sits atop it. This will start sometime in 2024 or 25 and cost between $30 million to $40 million for both the levee and trail work. Denver hopes sidewalk stencil reminders and slow zones will reduce scooter injuries. 
by Rebecca Tauber. As scooter use continues to grow in Denver, so do safety concerns and potential for accidents. This fall, the Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, DOTI, plans to roll out, roll out new safety measures to promote responsible riding. DOTI will first introduce its new initiatives in Lodo, which sees high ridership. People can expect to see stencils on the sidewalk reminding riders that scooters should go where bikes go and to stay 